0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to the genetics podcast for this last episode before the holidays in 2021. We're bringing you a special episode that's a crossover episode with Sasha from the personalized medicine podcast. In this episode, we're going to talk through six major developments in 2021. Sasha and I each brought three to discuss. These range from cancer testing, newborn sequencing, AI, and machine learning. We're going to talk about a number of different things. It was really great. Sasha's a super smart guy. He knows lots about personalized medicine, and I learned a ton through the episode. Hope you enjoy it. If you have any feedback on the episode or on the podcast as a whole, as always, please feel free to email us at podcast at If you're enjoying the podcast, please just share it with a friend that's a great way for us to spread and get more people listening you can also leave a review on one of your favorite podcast players without further ado i'm going to turn it over to the episode and i really hope you enjoy thanks again for listening and happy holidays So excited to do this crossover episode. We're going to get right into it. I'm going to ask Sasha actually to just give a quick intro to his. It's not necessarily his number one. We haven't ranked these in any order, but number one on his list of big developments in 2021. And I'm going to ask a few questions and we'll kick the discussion off. Over to you, Sasha.
1: Yeah, thanks. I think that that was an interesting exercise, right? To just reflect back on the year and try to see what were the main developments, the main highlights of uh, of the year that is passing for personalized medicine, for genetics, uh, for the broader field of, of precision medicine. And I think the one development that I think we both want to pick for this year would be the launch of the massive um, program, the massive screening program for cancer uh, by Grail and NHS in UK, so-called gallery or gallery test, and which aims to detect cancer, essentially, pre-symptomatically. So I think what is very unique and what is very special about this program, that for the first time, that will be a really large trial. Um, I think about 140,000 patients will be recruiting into it uh, over the course of next few years to determine, essentially, whether with the liquid biopsy test, we can detect cancer before the symptoms actually kick in and uh, this is if that if that works out i think we will probably look back at this as a watershed moment in the history right we don't know if it will work out we don't know what the efficiency of this test would be but shall it work out that would be a major game changer because if we can detect cancer early obviously the spectrum of treatments that is just available for for those patients would be completely different, right? And the possibility of positive outcomes will be much, much higher. So I think that is, for me, for sure, one of the one of the top developments uh, in, in this year. And I'm very, very curious to see how it will go and how it will develop over the course of next few years.
0: Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I, I wonder if maybe you could break down what the the bear cases or or those who suspect this won't work if it doesn't work why why wouldn't it work um and, and what could be the stumbling block for this from your perspective
1: yeah good question i think well to be on the skeptical side right uh this might not work for for several reasons i think the my biggest fear at least is that it might be not specific or not sensitive enough right so what grail has proven before that they are actually able to detect um, cancer based on the cell-free dna floating in the blood from those cancerous cells but they could do it in the patients that have already manifested symptoms right so cancer in that group of patients was already diagnosed by other methods now the big challenge the big question is is do we have a sufficient quantity of that cell free DNA in the in those patients that can be detected before manifestation of any symptoms and and that's I think the biggest question mark right if if it's if it's still the case, if we can detect that cell free DNA if it is there, then it's great and I think if if that barrier is overcome, everything else should fall into place and then another point maybe that I see that is more on the socio ethical spectrum of uh of things is would patients like to know uh, about ha- possibly having cancer um, or, or not in advance right if the test is sensitive but maybe it's not specific enough let's say it returns false positive result i don't know in 20 30 of the cases then we start asking those ethical questions so Shall we stress out patients that maybe are not having cancer in the first place with those false positive results? So I'm curious to see how this will develop.
0: Yeah. Do you have any sense in the trial how how deep they're going to measure those sorts of things? Because this is one of the things that struck me as a big challenge of it is that they're probably measuring things like healthcare utilization from an economic perspective to say when those false positives come and, and they will. What is the cost of all that additional screening? Because this has been discussed for a long time in germline breast cancer and, and um, you know, the other kind of inherited cancer screening. But it strikes me as a really tricky thing to measure comprehensively. Do you have any any sense of how they're measuring that or what, uh, what the endpoints besides, you know, false positive, false negative, but to, to measure actually the economic impact as a whole are? Yeah. To be honest,
1: I, I don't know that in detail and how how GRAIL wants to to test this. So I would hope that at least since they are doing this in collaboration with NHS, they should be addressing those issues. And given just the scale of the trial um, and the number of patients that they plan to recruit, that would be really important. Um, I think what they are doing right, at least from from the outside perspective, is that they are really focusing that on the Patients that previously haven't been diagnosed with cancer, I I think the enrollment criteria is the patients that haven't been diagnosed with cancer for at least three years prior to to inclusion to the trial, and that also don't show any any symptoms that might be related to any type of cancer. Uh, But I agree with you, that would be really interesting to see how they can actually define that this test will have economic and health benefit to, to the patient and to the healthcare system.
0: Yeah, I'll definitely be following it closer. One of the things that struck me at the time this was announced about the coverage was was also there were a lot of people on taking the negative angle on this about is is this where the NHS should be spending its scarce resources? And I, I'm I'm obviously like you, quite a techno optimist, and like this kind of stuff. Uh, and one of the other stories developments we're going to talk to is probably in the same kind of category as this. But I did think that was an interesting take where there were some people saying, you know, should, should we not allocate these resources to many of the more myriad, uh, immediate term problems. But, but obviously there's a case to be made on the other side, which is that this is an enormous and growing challenge that requires a a moonshot type solution or or set of thinking at least. So I'm, I'm on balance pro running these kind of experiments in the NHS, but it's just, it's just interesting and good to see that they are stepping forward and taking these these big swings that not everybody necessarily is.
1: Yeah, definitely. And Patrick, you know this better. And maybe I have actually a question to you in this regard. Why do you think UK is on the forefront of these things? And it's not just about this program. I think when we look at COVID and let's say the genetic screening, uh, the genomic screening that has been done in UK, it's pretty much unparalleled to what has been done in any other developed country. So what is special about the UK so why you are so successful in pushing those innovative programs uh, forward
0: Yeah it it is a really good question I think there's a and I'm I'm in no way an expert on this but from what I can see living here it's seen very much as actually a big economic engine of the country and so they put out the UK puts out industrial strategy top down focus on personalized medicine genetics so it's actually not just seen through the lens of how can we use this to better health, but it's seen very much as as part of the the UK's USP uh, unique you know unique selling point or value proposition on a global scale of we should be at the forefront of this. So I think that's a big driver behind it, and it's it's the reason why they do a lot of these things. I think there's also some serendipity in that uh, David Cameron had a had a child that was affected, I, I believe, by brain cancer and personally was very motivated to put a lot of money into genomics when it was quite early in its development and and funded programs like the Hundred Thousand Genomes Program. And I think some of these early bets, you know, as as you'll know, have compounding effects where if the decision is made right or wrongly at that time, then you go down that path because because uh, you've made that decision. So I, I think a couple of really good decisions five six seven ten years ago uh we actually we had the c or the ceo and um one of the founders of the uk biobank on the podcast and they they started they started almost 20 years ago i think actually more than 20 years ago now and only about 10 years ago did they get large scale funding to do to do genomic sequencing and and first genotyping and then sequencing so a lot of it has been many years in the making but then big top-down decisions from the government and uh and other sources to fund these large projects.
1: Perfect. Patrick, so I'm curious what's, what's on your list. What would you think is, is one of the biggest developments of 2021?
0: Yeah, this is um, another NHS uh, one. We're not, it's not going to be hopefully too UK-centric, uh, but this is a good follow-up on this. This has been recently announced that the NHS and Genomics England are working together on a very large-scale newborn whole genome sequencing screening program. And, and I hesitated on this a little bit because there are many countries that have been doing in large scale testing for newborns has been expanding. Um, but this is the first time that we've seen whole genome sequencing uh, announced on such a scale. There have been uh, programs. So this is a big program, Baby Seek out of Harvard in the U.S. that has done a lot of amazing work on what parents expect to receive back, the ethical implications, and and the uh, psychological implications, also the health implications. But again, I think it's just so powerful when an institution like the NHS gets involved in these kind of things because if it's successful, there's a a, a way for it to actually be translated across to an entire population. So I thought that's what was so interesting and and special about this. They haven't announced too many details about exactly what they'll be screening for, but it's it's looking to be a, you know, a significant range of initially, I suspect rare inherited severe and, and treatable probably disorders that they'll be screening for, but it gives a platform to start to test new things, um, you know, ho- and hopefully roll them out on a national scale in the UK. And, and I imagine others will follow suit as, uh, as the program's been successful. So I thought that was a really interesting, uh, and, and pretty big development that I, I certainly wasn't expecting actually, if you would ask me at the start of the year
1: yeah definitely. And do you know if the idea would be just to do the whole genome sequencing exome sequencing is there a sequencing of speci- specific uh, loci that are related to to specific genetic inborn disorders so what what is the the end game there?
0: yeah, so they're doing whole genome sequencing mm. they a- and they'll basically be applying an in silico panel so they're going to sequence the whole genome, but they're not, I I actually can tell you, they're certainly not going to report on things like APOE4 status that might uh, tell you about Alzheimer's risk. They will report on, I'm sure, things like SMA and and many other, they'll report on, I'm not sure exactly what the flow will go, probably these... um, these participants will already have gone through a heel prick test and and um, come through without any uh, considerations or, or issues there. But they haven't actually announced what they're going to test for, but they're going to essentially, in theory, be able to test for anything uh, that a whole genome can cover. It's really just a question about what they actually will report on. And, and I understand they've made the decision to not report on Late later in life, uh, things obviously apoE4 is a kind of particularly challenging one uh, to discuss. But even some that may be a little bit more straightforward, like like BRCA, uh, i I imagine they will not be reporting on those, given that it's a thirty to fifty year timeline before any of those children or their parents could could make any action, prophylactic action on that.
1: Got it. And I guess in this case, the storage of the data will remain with the with the authorities who will do the testing right so or will patients in theory over the long term get access to their full uh, genome sequences
0: yeah so in in theory absolutely my understanding is it'll become part of genomics england's library they actually use the metaphor which i think is great they call it a a reading library so it's a a lending library is somewhere where you can take books out with you, but a reading library is somewhere where you have to go and read the books there. So they have a, a trusted research environment where uh, academic researchers, pharma researchers can go in and analyze the data. And And I, I my understanding is that participants will consent to be part of this program. In the UK, you can make a subject access request, I, I believe it's called, and actually request access to your data. But I think it's a really operationally challenging thing for them to do because it's such a large file. I, I don't think they love to get uh, tens, tens, hundreds, thousands of um, of these requests. But I do think there will be a day, certainly within the next five to 10 years, where, where participants will have access to this data because it's so unique where you only need to test once and you can have a lifetime of um, interpretation, I, I think it will absolutely go that way.
1: Perfect. Yeah. And what do you think how this can improve our understanding of some of the rare diseases that are maybe even more rare than, <laughs> than uh, let's say, the average rare diseases that we speak about, like SMA, uh, something that happens maybe in one in a million cases, something like that. What What type of developments would you expect to see happening on that front?
0: Yeah, it's a it's a really good question. Where one of the things that I think is interesting about this is it's actually v- very tricky to do kind of truly population representative large scale genetics cohorts. Almost all of them are really heavily ascertained. So in my PhD, I worked on a project focused on rare neurodevelopmental disorders and and childhood disease. And we knew the way that project was structured, you only get into that research study if you've if you your child has a rare neurodevelopmental disorder. So it's hard then to make any uh, extrapolations about what the population frequency of a um, of a particular disease is. You can with some clever statistics, but one of the powers of this actually, I think if it, they plan to just camp out in uh, maternity wards and try to enroll everybody who's interested, is, is my understanding of the recruitment plan. And, and it'll be probably something like a third of all babies that they need to enroll in a given year to hit the target. So they actually should get a really very representative sample uh, of, of the population and, and a true rate of some of these rare diseases because there's a lot of open questions about penetrance and having one of these, having a genetic variant that shows up in people with a particular rare disease. Does it always cause that disease or are some people uh, actually avoid having the disease due to another protective variant? I think they should be able to help answer some of those questions in a much more robust way than, than it's been possible previously.
1: Perfect. Yeah. It's great to hear.
0: It is. It's a, it's exciting times. Uh, all right, let's, I think we should transition here. I'm going to ask you for your number two on your list, which is a really interesting one. I'm, I'm looking forward to talking about it, uh, over to you.
1: Yeah. Uh, so I think the one that, that I, I, I want to pick also for this year, uh, is uh, the progress that have been doing in the field of autologous stem cells and stem cell therapies uh, in general. I think stem cells kind of entered our life with the discovery of IPSCs. I believe it was 2007, 2008. There was a lot of buzz, a lot of hope at the moment. Uh, didn't turn to clinic that fast or as fast as we wanted it to happen due to several limitations um, in how we essentially manufacture those cells, how we differentiate them into the appropriate tissue, and how we maintain the safety of, the, of those induced pluripotent stem cells and prevent them from becoming uh, cancer cells in the human body. But I think there are a few diseases where iPSCs, in general, stem cells are slowly making their way to clinics. And one that I want to pick for this year specifically would be Parkinson's disease if you look for, at parkinson's disease and why parkinson's disease is particularly important frontier for for stem cells um, there is no 100% efficient therapy right there are several medications that can be taken to some extent alleviate symptoms and there is deep brain stimulation which has proven to be quite effective uh, especially in the early onset of the disease but Nevertheless, it doesn't treat the disease completely. After some point in time, patients will still deteriorate to the worst state and eventually death. And uh, this is really sad. So what can be done, we can try to rejuvenate or replenish that dying source of, of neurons uh, to, to essentially save the patient and make sure that uh, the brain restores its normal function and symptoms of Parkinson's disease essentially disappear. The challenge there is, I would say, twofold. The first one we pretty much overcome over the last few years is how to deliver those cells. The good thing about Parkinson's disease in comparison to a lot of other neurodegenerative disorders, you know exactly which cells you need to replace, and you know in exactly the space in the brain you need to place those cells into. So it is, a, it is a very complex type of surgery, but it is, in a way, very precise and very defined type of surgery and over the course of time we actually learned how to deliver those cells to that very specific point of the brain now the second challenge is obviously how to get the cells and how to differentiate them to neurons if you work in neurobiology you know that neuronal cultures are probably one of the most difficult cultures to to maintain in the dish let alone take those cells out and then reimplant them into the body so The progress that that has been made, and there are a few very exciting clinical trials being published this year. One of them would be from the Blue Rock. This is the company that essentially develops allogeneic stem cell therapies. They take pluripotent stem cells from healthy donors, they uh, differentiate them into into the dopaminergic neurons, and they re-inject them in the human brain. They've published a very exciting study this summer on the safety and the efficacy of um, of that approach in the first patients, but I think where the true holy grail and coming to the grail again uh, lays uh, in this space would be the autologous stem cells. And the reason is that with allogeneic transplantation, you still have the probability of quite severe immune response and uh, overall difficulty into adjusting of those implanted cells to adjust to the environment of the of the host brain. The developments that we've seen this year uh, coming mainly like from Aspen Neuroscience, uh, the company headed by Jean Lauren. I had a pleasure hosting her on, on our podcast in the beginning of this year. They're really showing very, very promising results in the way they can take, take the patient's own cells, de differentiate them to IPC state, and they develop a very cool, sophisticated, or not maybe that sophisticated, actually, it's it's elegant tests, uh, genetic test to test for possible teratoma formation. So they have a way to screen the cells, to separate the pool of iPSCs that is actually not dangerous for the patient, and then very robust protocols to differentiate those two neurons. And uh, they're planning to to launch that into clinics either next year or the year afterwards. And this is something that I'm very, very much looking forward in the future.
0: Yeah, I, I think it's excellent. I am also, I'm very fascinated about the allogeneic versus autologous uh, debate it seems like there's a, a little bit of a um uh, a debate going on within the field of uh, ultimately both of them will be i'm sure of it will be useful and important but it seems like there's a little bit of a question of which one will ultimately win the day and and i think you gave a good overview there of essentially autologous is taking somebody's own cells reprogramming them in some way and then transplanting them back into them Whereas allogeneic, allogeneic is so-called off-the-shelf, where you've taken effectively a donor population of cells and and find the one that's the closest match. I'd I'd be really interested in your thoughts on if you had to pick one horse to bet on in that race, and maybe in neuroscience, let's say to to just constrain things a little bit. Uh, it sounded like you were saying autologous maybe is um, is your favorite, and I'd be happy to take the other side for the the sake of debate. I'm curious which. Um, Which one do you think has has the most staying power?
1: Since I'm the host of Personalized Medicine Podcast, I have to pick out all because I don't really have a choice uh, in this race, right? Uh, But like all jokes aside, I think both of them will definitely have their place in the market. And I think that will depend a lot on the condition that is being treated and how easy is it to manufacture those cells and make them safe for the patient. We will see different developments for different diseases, and I don't even think it would be easy to generalize it, let's say, for neurobiology or for cancer, for any specific type of condition or indication. In general, I I am a fan of autologous stem cells. There is a, I I don't want to say misconception, but probably bias towards thinking that autologous stem cells are necessarily much more expensive to produce they probably are at this moment of time the advantage however of autologous ipcs is if we have established protocols how to do how to first like, collect the cells differentiate them and then differentiate them in the target tissue you need normally the minuscule number of those cells to essentially treat the patient and you also don't have to maintain those large banks of let's say allogeneic cells and make sure that they are Of the right quality that they don't accumulate say cancerogenic or other types of mutations over time which is also a challenge for for allogeneic therapy so i think it will depend on on the specific indication on the specific type of treatment there is certainly a lot of benefit in allogeneic therapy when we speak about the car t-cells i think there has been a lot of progress in that space but i'm also curious to see how this will develop over a longer period of time
0: yeah i definitely share your your point that the primary concern it seems like is how you scale up manufacturing or or the the process but i don't think we're there yet with either autologous or, or allogenic both have their their own challenges but it seems like if the manufacturing or scalability challenge can be solved then it's it's clearly superior for obvious reasons that if you can use someone's own cells um but i i know i i know i don't know enough about it to really <laughs> speak to um it's too much of an expert, but I understand that it's, it's got a big challenge ahead to actually get that, um, get that process to be scalable in a cost-effective way.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And look, there are, again, a lot of startups who are trying to tackle that manufacturing challenge. We also had Nabihas a client from Celino on our podcast. I think developing the differentiation protocols to achieve specific type of cells is hard, but then scaling that up is probably even harder. Just because you need to control for so many different parameters in those very complex environments, and it's not an easy task, so there is plenty of room to for developments in that space, manufacturing, quality control, and then actually release of that product as the final drug to the patient.
0: Is uh, is as far as you're aware, is Parkinson's the first? disease where is it the furthest along in terms of autologous stem cell therapies and getting to the clinic or are there others that are Mm. that are further along or, or or in a similar in a similar ballpark
1: yeah good question i don't want to be wrong here so i i would honestly answer that i'm not aware of other diseases that are more progressed in terms of autologous cell usage well maybe if you look at the autologous cells or stem cells, in the broader sense, you can argue that some of the cell-based cancer therapies are based on autologous precursor cells. So those won't be iPSCs per se, but those will be autologous cell therapies. But in terms of truly de-differentiated somatic cells, then differentiated into, into the target tissue, I think Parkinson's would be one of the, one of the first ones to, to, to have those type of therapies.
0: Yeah, I'm. I'm also not aware of any others. Maybe one of the listeners who knows more about this than us. If, if there are others, they'll. I'm, I'm sure they'll email us or uh, or otherwise let us know.
1: <laughs> Definitely, let us know. Great, uh, Patrick. I know that your number two on the list is also very, very exciting. Also concerns those emerging therapies. So why don't you tell our audiences what was your second biggest highlight?
0: Yeah, it's. It- it's not exactly a first in and of itself, but it's, a, it's, I think, a significant continuation of what is going to be a trend for a very long time, which is extremely effective one-time therapies. Uh, initially, I think most of these were for very rare diseases like SMA. Uh, however, there are many, many more examples, I think, coming down the pipeline, in particular two that I wanted to highlight was uh, gene editing of PCSK9 that was initially done in primates. So this is a, uh, there, there's a set of genetic variants in this gene that will cause familial hypercholesterolemia, so high high cholesterol. And it was shown that a one-time uh, base editing could be made in primates and, and there'd be durable, at least, my understanding is at least... Uh, Ten months potentially, or or, or longer of uh, of durable cholesterol lowering, uh, and in humans there was this was not gene editing, but in humans there was a um, an a, a transplant of pancreatic islet cells into a type one diabetic person that appeared to um, essentially fundamentally, and uh, I think in this case it's they, they measured for at least ninety days, but to have a transformative effect there. So these are both two very common uh conditions and obviously I think we're going to continue to see this in rare diseases but it seems like as a category these one time um you know maybe they're not one time maybe they need to be done every couple of years but uh shifting from chronic management into something that's much closer to one time I think is is obviously an amazing development from a technological standpoint but I'm also really Personally interested in how the business models around healthcare need to evolve to cope to handle these kind of things, which um, many of the rare disease uh, treatments have been infamous for how expensive they are, but yet they do they do deliver as much value uh, to to the patients and families' lives as is on the sticker price, but our, our system has not yet figured out how to pay for those at scale.
1: Yeah, I agree. Like, if you look at the price tags, for example, for Zolgensma, I think today the most expensive drug. That is available there on the market to treat SMA. Um, that 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 looks scary uh, at the first sight. But what do you think can be the path forward there? Um, how can we bring those therapies to the broader market and make them available for everybody who needs them?
0: Yeah, I, I've done a little bit of thinking about this. I know there will be smarter people in in our audiences who've who've thought about this a little bit more. But there's a big, there's two big differences in health economic or business models between the U.S. where I grew up and and the U.K. where I live now. I think the U.K. is in a better position because of the vertical integration of the system that the the NHS can take a very long term view on my health and say if it, it's worth spending a million pounds for one dose now, if it saves us far more than that and saves your life over a longer period of time. So I think they've got not an impossible uh chance to solve that problem but i think there're still significant challenges there simply because of the cost of some of these therapies and and i know if you do the back of the envelope calculation if rare disease if therapies were available for every rare disease then it would affect and they were the the price point that the few that are available today are it it would bankrupt the nhs but i think that ignores the um you know the the fact that the prices are going to come down and competition is going to enter the market over the long run. So I actually think vertically integrated systems, um, national healthcare systems will be able to figure that out, but it's going to take some time. Where it's more challenging is is in the US and other places where health insurance dominates. And I had somebody explain this to me and it made a lot of sense after they explained it to me, but basically you're not guaranteed to be with your health insurer for any period of time. I mean, you you may they they may expect you to be with them for five years or so on average. But if you move to a new state or uh, or or just simply decide to switch, they have a, a much bigger challenge, which is if they've paid for that million dollar treatment and then two years later you leave and you go to someone else, then then their their models break down. So the health insurance companies actually have to figure out how to develop some sort of credit system at large to account for the people who are swapping between um, and and the way that value works out of the long run. And so that's just a much trickier problem, I think, to solve in terms of how this works. And I think it's probably delayed. Uh, it will, will delay the adoption in some of these cases, just because it, it's going to be a little bit more challenging to figure out how to pay for it.
1: Yeah, definitely. And Patrick, looking at those genetic inborn diseases where one-time treatment can be applicable. What are the other indications where you expect this type of therapies to emerge over the next few years?
0: I have a a personal bias towards um, the long tail of rare neurodevelopmental and other childhood diseases. One of the big challenges here is it's, it's assumed, I mean, and and there's some, some works backs up, but that there's a window of opportunity where you need to be able to treat the child in order to have, you know, in order to actually have an effect that if brain development has already, um, you know, been going for many years and, and the child is, becomes an adolescent or a young adult, it may be very difficult to actually reverse some of those changes. But if we combine the the previous discussion we were having about early screening and detection with advances in base editing gene therapy other approaches then i can i can see a really um i'm very optimistic about a future where diseases can be detected far earlier and and actually treated in that window of opportunity there have been a few papers that have shown in in diseases I, I believe like rett syndrome and some others that that window of opportunity is actually it's not really narrow. It's potentially wider than we think. There may be a few year window where you can actually make meaningful differences, but but probably every disease will be the same. And that work needs to be done to figure out which which ones need to be treated when. Perfect. Great. Now, the next one on your list... I I'm excited to talk about because I this was completely not on my radar. Um I had I had no idea what this was and I did a little bit of reading beforehand, but I'm excited to hear it from you and ask you a few questions. So I'm I'm gonna turn it over to you for the next one to talk about glycoproteomic markers and explain to us what that is.
1: Yes. I guess this is like an orphan highlight, right, on our list. I love glycobiology, so I must confess and big disclaimer, um, this is something that my wife has been working uh, on quite extensively in in her research career um, as well and uh, why I like it. So let me first break this down. So glycoproteomics, glycobiology allows us to measure different subset of biomarkers that is not really that common in modern diagnostics. If you think about diagnostics, you a, think about DNA. So you would either use PCR or sequencing to detect specific DNA or RNA sequences, or you would use some sort of immunoassays or mass spec to examine proteins, right? These are your two classical type of biomarkers. You might also throw metabolites on top of it, uh, have some metabolomics, but that's, that's essentially it. So when we speak about omics, it's always like genomics, proteomics, metabolomics, but there is this beautiful world of Glycoproteomics uh, or glycomics that allows you to measure glycosylated versions of the proteins. And the reason why it hasn't penetrated our routine diagnostics so much so far is that because those glycans, those glycoproteins, are notoriously hard to study. So if you take, for example, MASPEC, which has progressed tremendously over the last 20 years and helped us to understand essentially proteins and how, how they work. It's really hard to measure glycosylated proteins. It's really hard to measure sugars, although those are relatively simple molecules. If you compare that to DNA,
0: again, and proteins,
1: they don't, like in, in mass spec terms, they don't fly well in mass spec,
0: right? So did they just slip through the net somehow and they'll show up?
1: They slip through the net and because of the that simplicity in their structure, right? So if, for example, you have glucose or mannose, it's the same chemical formula, and they would generate very similar ions, right? It's it's hard to distinguish those. Right. And then on top of that, you don't really know the sequence of that glycan tree on top of the protein in the first place. Because if you have DNA, you already have sequence banks, you know, like what the specific sequence of that gene should be. If you have a protein, you know what the specific sequence of that protein should be because you know the gene that encodes for it, but you have no idea how that oligosaccharide tree on the top of the protein would look like. But that oligosaccharide tree can be extremely important and can be extremely different between healthy cells and cancerous cells. And the development that I've picked as a third one for for this year would be the first approved FDA approved glycoprotein based test for cancer detection. And this is actually the test um, for for the pelvic cancer that is developed by the company called Intervene. Uh, it's a San Francisco-based company co-founded by Professor Bertossi, whom I'm a big fan of and admirer of, of her work. If she listens to this podcast or somebody in our audience knows her, please let me know because I've been trying to get introduce her introduce Yes, Yes, <laughs> for a long time. Uh, yeah, she's, she's essentially the godmother of the field. And uh, essentially what this test allows to do is to, again, detect the cancer much, much earlier that test also allows to distinguish between benign and malignant type of tumor, which is also not that trivial with the conventional biomarkers. And they have a full pipeline of other cancer indications where that type of approach uh, can be used in the future. So I'm very, very excited about that. And obviously a little bit biased as well.
0: Absolutely. So how does the test, how does the, how does the technology work in, in the way that mass spec and other methods miss these pieces what what are they able to do that allow them to to catch them what's different
1: yeah so essentially it's a lot of try and error and trying to understand how how to deconvolute those signals that are coming from the from the sugars on the sugar part of the uh of the glycoproteins it also involves a quite complex chromatographic step right so you would have to sometimes cleave those sugars run them on like different columns uh try to understand the retention times how does it differ between different combinations of those oligosaccharides and then you build the libraries so you kind of create the empirical knowledge of what the signal should look like then you compare those to those databases and the more knowledge you generate the better your detection system gets but it's, i think the essence of this test was just to try to understand Okay what type of oligosaccharide tree would give you what type of signal.
0: And then uh, effectively, is it the case that knowing these glycoprotein markers w- help to differentiate? Is it treatment strategy for the pelvic and, and ovarian cancer? Or is it um, tells you something about what is it? What does it tell you?
1: Yeah, from my understanding, in, in terms of pelvic cancer, it's mainly earlier diagnosis. The first thing and the second one is distinguish, um, ability to distinguish between those benign and malignant tumors, which is not that trivial. For some of the other indications that they have in pipeline, I believe it would be possible to determine the severity uh, of the disease because you don't only—it's not only just a yes or no type of answer. You might have different type of those oligosaccharide trees on top of the uh, protein, and that. Let's say relative expression levels of of specific um, specific glycoproteins, if you will, can also determine the severity of the disease and uh, determine prognosis.
0: Great. What I really liked about this one was I'm I'm blanking on on who the famous person who said this was, and and I'll also probably get the three in the wrong order, but uh, hopefully I get the spirit right, which is uh, new. Th- the way that science progresses is technology, data. And new hypotheses in that order. It's not often people think, "Oh, we've got a new idea," and then we go out and test it. But actually, the thing that comes first is a new technology that helps you uncover something new. And, and in this case, it's to see see where <laughs> see where we haven't seen before. So, technology, data, and then hypotheses, and, and then the loop starts again. So, it's always I always love to learn about new new views into new parts of biology, obviously sequencing has been, th- that's been the story of sequencing for the last 20 years. Um, the amount of, of discoveries that have come out of, of just a technological change, but it sounds like there's a, uh, this is happening here as well. Something I should spend a little more time understanding.
1: I, I completely agree with you on, on, on this approach. And I think that ties very nicely to the last point that, that you, Patrick wanted to bring up and I'm sure we could have talked about this topic for, for the whole episode. Yes. So why don't you tell our audience,
0: what did you pick? Actually, that's a really good, um, such a good segue because it is a, a new technology and, and a, um, a potentially transformative Uber technology, not just to help to our whole world. But the piece, yeah, the, the, the development I wanted to bring, which again, isn't necessarily a single event, but is a continuation of a trend is, is there's been some really big advancements in AI Machine learning and drug discovery. And, and those of you who know me know that I'm not really a, I'm not a kind of complete AI ML fanboy that that's all I, I talk about. But I think, I think it's a useful tool. But there have been in particular a couple of big stories that should, that stood out. The first and foremost is the open sourcing of, um, of uh, Deep Minds Alpha Fold. Uh, That enables us, you know, us, obviously I haven't downloaded it yet because I don't spend that much time coding anymore, but uh, anyone who reasonably knows their way around a machine learning model can now download this incredible uh, machine learning model for doing protein folding and predicting the way proteins fold. And and I think that this will allow a thousand flowers to bloom over the next couple of years. Uh, and, And it's remarkable that they've actually made the decision to open source it and not Keep it internally to do whatever they do, but I think they recognize that the opportunity for having an impact by open sourcing it was was so massive. And and there are a couple other kind of smaller stories around this. In particular, some of the leading AI and and ML based drug discovery companies like like Recursion and Benevolent AI uh, are striking some pretty significant deals with large pharma. And, and obviously, these deals can always always need to be taken with a grain of salt because they'll they, they have payments that are long, long in the future should the molecule succeed. But um, but the fact that people are starting to take these approaches much more seriously, I think there is an opportunity for these kind of approaches to understand uh, data that we're collecting in a way that that is impossible for even an, an army of humans that are trolling over it to do. So I'm, I'm very optimistic, uh, cautiously optimistic. Of course, there's, there's lots that still needs to be done to get these AI-generated drugs into the clinic. And and I think the detractors will argue that many of these AI-generated drugs are actually could have been uh, discovered by people anyways. But uh, nonetheless, I I think there's a lot of interesting things happening there.
1: Definitely. And Patrick, you already alluded to this. It's probably the field that, that has so much hype in it. So how do we consciously separate wheat from chaff here and understand what actually might have technological or clinical benefit in the future and what just puts smokes in the eyes
0: yeah i i this is you know probably pretty straightforward and and you know maybe obvious but i think there's two things really number one is be honest about the benchmarks that we're comparing it against so are we making discoveries using this new technology that were truly transformative and humans couldn't do i think this is with alpha fold no one can argue against this right there's um the 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 you'll hear even the most um you know credentialed x-ray crystallographers that have said uh things that took me a decade or, or or that we've never been able to crack have been solved by this algorithm so i think it number one is what are we comparing it against and is it clearly demonstrably better where i don't think the evidence the, you know the preponderance of evidence isn't quite there for many of the origination of new molecular entities or, or drugs. Um, but I think the the second piece is just time. Time will tell, do these, you know, do these things deliver, uh, do these models deliver outsized results compared to what others have? And, and I think there are many companies that are getting, uh, you know, have considerable backing behind them of people that believe they can. And so I, I think it will work itself out in the next five years or so, either they will produce significant results, um, or they won't. But I think we're seeing, we're certainly seeing encouraging signs that, um, none of them are going away anytime soon.
1: Great. And speaking about business and like where the money flows in this space. So where do you see the future of, of that type of AI drug development? Do you expect large companies to like either acquire some of those smaller players and then fully integrate them? Or you expect, let's say? The whole new class of pharmaceutical companies to emerge that will be mainly AI driven and will kind of pump the early assets into the large pharma uh, pipelines
0: Yeah, it's such a good question i I suspect that a lot of the power will actually be in the hands it, when someone invents a a paradigm shifting technology or something that's sufficiently new I think of moderna as an example and, and they've obviously benefited tremendously from the the success that they've had in in developing the covid vaccine but they have a a very novel tech platform that they can go in in a million different directions so they have the option i think to build a complete standalone pharmaceutical company uh, i think this the same is the case with many of the ai based ml based drug discovery companies if they're able to build something that allows them to generate new you know new, new medicines repeatedly and at scale I don't see any reason why they couldn't go and do it themselves. What you know, and my understanding—this is—is many people in this world to know much more about this. But my understanding is the reason that most companies go through the acquisition process to to be acquired by a large pharma is because they believe that either um, they're going to be able to get to scale and distribution much more quickly by doing that, because those companies have the incredible global reach, manufacturing all of those other all of those other things, or because they're a company that's actually just developed a single asset or set of assets and not a platform technology or something that that could just repeatedly generate new assets. So I think for companies that have built uh, the the metaphor I often hear is is have you is your company a, a golden egg or is it a golden goose? If you if it's a goose that lays eggs, then those companies will be able to do it themselves i think if they choose to but if it's merely an egg that you've uh, licensed out of a university or or something like that then then probably they'll continue to sell those eggs to large pharma uh, who, who will help to to get them to scale and get them into the hands uh, of patients and doctors that can benefit from them
1: what do you see as the next kind of big development in terms of AI-based drug discovery. So we've seen obviously with AlphaFold a lot of things happening in the protein structure deconvolution. Uh, now with uh, with recursion and and their deal with Roche, do you think it's indication-specific game or what? What will be kind of the next wave of 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 new targets coming out of there?
0: Yeah, I I think there are a number of different applications, even just for AlphaFold itself, that could be pretty transformative. So. One is actually in the diagnostic space, which is we have so many challenges in whole genome and exome sequencing of of variants of unknown significance. So, uh, you know, a patient has cancer that runs in their family. You sequence the BRCA1 gene and they have a variant in there, but it's not one of the hundreds now, probably thousands of known variants that in that gene that cause breast cancer. And the question is, is that... uh, is that genetic variant um, pathogenic? Is it, is it cancer-causing or at least predisposing or not? There have been some amazing work one-off looking at genes like BRCA1 that actually are able to systematically perturb or mutate every base of the gene and ask the question of, does this change the function? Does this change the function? Does this change the function? And actually, you build up a library of every single change possible. Uh, and you do this in a cell line, uh, and why this is so powerful is because you'll never see all these variants in humans, but you can do it systematically in the lab and and basically build, build a library and, and ultimately a model. What I think things like AlphaFold will enable us to do is to not just do that one by one, but to, to do that in a computer model to say, if we change the DNA by one base, run the program and ask what happens to the protein and then make a prediction, uh, and, into how that impacts human health. And ultimately you need all the, you need the, you need enough observations of human health to be able to feed that back into the top of the model. But I'm really interested to see if it can be applied, uh, to, to improve the way we, we diagnose. And, and essentially it's a way to simulate things you've never seen before in the population using, using a model that can give you a best guess of, of what it's likely to do when you do see it.
1: Yeah. Fantastic. And let's, let's, let's watch that very closely and let's hope that all of these things will happen rather sooner than
0: later. I'm sure somebody out there is, is working on it right now.
1: Definitely. Perfect. Yeah. It has been an exciting year for sure for personalized medicine and uh, for our podcast, I believe as well. Definitely. Patrick, this was fantastic conversation. We should definitely repeat it next year.
0: Agreed. Yeah, no, it was a lot of fun. I think uh, in early 2022 we should do this and and try to predict what's going to happen, and then at the end of 2022 we can get together and and uh, realize how wrong all of our predictions were <laughs> and what we what happened that we didn't guess would happen.
1: Exactly, there is nothing more fun than looking back at what you said, <laughs> what we said uh, before, and just just poke holes in that. Great. Patrick, thanks so much for, for doing this crossover. That's been a pleasure. That was fun. Uh, I hope everybody in our audiences enjoyed this episode as well. Uh, if you liked it, let us know. We'll try to do this more often. As well, if you think that we missed something really, really important that happened in the field in this year, then please let us know on LinkedIn and Twitter. We'll we'll happily share this with our audiences because obviously we don't have the full oversight of this ever-growing field, right? It's, it's hard to catch up. Uh, was everything that's going on these days?
0: It is, and and uh, we we did have a couple more waiting around and in, in the backdrop that we prepped, but we decided to cut it just um just to make sure that we we didn't bore you all with having uh, too many of these. But if everybody liked it, then then let us know. And if not, uh, you can also let us know. Thanks, Sasha. It was really a pleasure. I I enjoyed it, and have a have a happy holiday as well. Hope if you're traveling anywhere that you get there safely and things don't get canceled and, and stay safe as well.
1: Perfect. Thanks, Patrick. Same to you and happy holiday season to to our audiences. Rest well.
0: Yes. Thanks.